What does it mean to be an authority? If you ever asked yourself that question, what does it mean to be an authority? A couple years ago, I was working for the YMCA, and I was in charge of an after-school program there. Now, my first couple weeks on the job, they were training me, and I'd go to different sites and watch other people and how they would conduct their before and after-school program. And then I can remember my first day on the job, I came to this site. It's up in Greenwood at a school. The morning, I had to be there at like 6.15 in the morning to get everything set up. And in the first hour or so, a child threw up everywhere. And I quickly had to learn where the janitor was and how to get the kids out of the room and into the gym so that they weren't there while they were cleaning it up. And it was just a whole mess of a morning. Later that week in the afternoon, one of the children spilled his applesauce into what is like an electrical circuit board, and it started smoking which is where we learn how to call the fire department and how to evacuate all the kids outside. And so it was a baptism by fire, hopefully not literally, in my first week doing before and after school program. I can remember before that week, I thought, I just want to be in charge. I just want to be ready to do the job and be in leadership. And that first week, I thought, I really wish I just wasn't in charge anymore, that I had somebody over me that I could pin some of this on, and maybe they could take responsibility from it. The dictionary says authority is the power to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. What's interesting is that most people who aren't in authority tend to want to tell the leadership what they need to do. A lot of times when you're in leadership, you want to blame the people who aren't in authority for all the issues. So it's kind of a back and forth between who has authority and who doesn't have authority. People that don't like authority or who don't have authority often want to blame those in leadership. And we also recognize that within authority, within leadership, or within lordship, there are different spheres. For instance, if I'm substitute teaching, I'm in charge of one classroom for one day. But when that teacher comes back, I'm not in charge anymore. If the teacher comes back and she's getting ready to start her day, it's not going to help if I come into the classroom and start telling the kids what to do. Linda drives a bus, and we know that she loves driving a bus for the school district. She talks about how much she loves driving the bus for the kids. But that doesn't mean she's in charge of all the other bus drivers, right? That doesn't mean that she's in charge of the entire school system. So there are different spheres of authority, different places where you might have authority in one sense, And you don't have authority in another place. You may have kids, you may have authority over your children, but when they become adults, you don't have the same kind of authority. You're not going to tell them what to do and they have to listen, maybe as much. You're hopefully not going to go to your kid's house and tell them to make their bed and clean up their room, things like that, like you once did. So there are different spheres, different places where we have authority. And unfortunately, this morning, we misunderstand authority a lot. We tend to, in our culture and even in the church, we misunderstand what authority is all about. I want to share with you a couple ways as we start looking at this topic this morning. Sometimes we think all authority is wrong. Especially in our culture today, there's, they're pushing this, that anyone who has any type of authority is wrong, they're abusive, and that they're misusing the authority that they have. Now, there are people in power that shouldn't be. There are people with authority that aren't doing what's right, but not all authority is wrong. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans that those who have authority, that authority is given to them by God, and we should submit to them as we submit to God, assuming they have godly leadership. They're leading us in what God wants us to do. 
So we don't want to assume that all authority is wrong. God has designed the world with authority. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every other living thing that moves on the earth. Authority is not wrong. What's wrong with authority is that people who are sinful misuse it and abuse it. So that brings me to the second misunderstanding. Sometimes we misunderstand authority because we trust human authority blindly. That's like the other half of the spectrum. Sometimes we put all of our trust in human leaders, not realizing that they're human, that they're not going to fix all of our problems, and that they fail. How many of us, as we get ready for elections and uh, political season that we're in, how many people do you meet that think that this candidate or this person is just going to fix all of our issues? I read an article the other day that maybe Taylor Swift should run for president. And I thought, man, this is really where we've gotten to as a society. We just think anybody's going to fix the country. And the truth is we shouldn't trust human authority blindly. This leads to abuse in other different situations. It doesn't mean we have to mistrust all authority, but we should think critically about authority, recognizing that it comes from God. Thirdly, we take authority from God. Sometimes in our lives, in our spheres of influence, we want to play God. We want to try to be God to other people and in our life. Sometimes we struggle with God because we don't want to submit to his authority. Think about this, even as we share the gospel with people, you will meet some people in your life that don't want to accept the gospel because they don't want to have Jesus as Lord over their life. They want to keep doing everything on their own. And when you're saved, you can come to Jesus as you are, but you're not going to stay that way. He's going to change you. He's going to become the Lord of your life. And so we take authority from God. And then finally, we fail to steward authority responsibly. The last way that we misunderstand authority, we don't, or we don't use it correctly. The different areas that God has given us to manage, we don't do those things well. Think about Adam and Eve. God told Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Well, that, he was obviously successful in that. That's why we're here. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And did Adam use that authority correctly? No, he didn't. Think about even the authority that he had over his wife. She takes the fruit from the serpent. She eats, and it says Adam was there with her. Now, it doesn't mean that Adam needed to be an abusive leader, and sometimes we misunderstand that, but Adam should have told his wife no. Instead, he not only didn't tell his wife no, he did the same thing that she did. So all throughout history, we've had this misunderstanding of authority that comes from God. So this brings us back to Ephesians. In the last four verses of chapter 1, we get a picture of the authority of Jesus. It comes on the heels of this prayer of Paul. He's praying for the Ephesians that they would grow in their knowledge of God. He wants them. He prays for them often. He's not only thankful for them, but that they would grow in knowing God and that by growing in their knowledge of God, they would then recognize the hope that they have, they would recognize their inheritance that they have from God, and then that they would have this power, they would know this power that God has in their lives. And Paul starts talking about the authority of Jesus as he speaks of the power of God in raising him from the dead. And so what we want to see this morning from these four verses is that we should submit ourselves, you should submit yourself to the authority of 
of Christ. Jesus has authority over everything. That's what we're going to find out in these verses. And so because of that, you should submit yourself to his authority. And this is how Paul lays it out in these verses. He's first going to tell us why Jesus has authority. He's going to show us in verse 20 why Jesus has authority over everything. So look at this with me in verse 20 of chapter 1. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now we need to look backwards at verse 19. Remember, Paul's been praying that they grow in their knowledge of God. And he prays for them to do this so that they can know three things. And we just mentioned them, that they would know the hope that they have. Remember, he's talked about faith, hope, and love. They were doing well in their faith and they were doing well in their love. But they needed to understand their hope that they had, not this wishful thinking, but a confidence that they had in God and in what God was going to do in their lives. Secondly, he wanted them to understand their inheritance, that when we die, this isn't it, that we have a heavenly inheritance with God in glory. And the last thing in verse 19, and this is what verse 20 points back to, is that they would understand God's great power. And Paul uses several words to describe this power in verse 19. And now in verse 20, he's going to illustrate it. He says this great, unspeakable, unmeasurable power is what raised Christ from the dead. This is going to show us why Jesus has authority. We've discussed already in Ephesians what Christ has done for us on the cross. If you look back at verse 7 of chapter 1, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins or the forgiveness of trespasses. So that's what Christ did for us. He died on the cross. He forgave us of our sins. It happened on that first day when he died, on the day where he was crucified. But now we're speaking of the resurrection. And the resurrection is an important concept in scripture for us to understand. It was important to the early church, and it's important for us now even today. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul says, If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So we see ultimately that the resurrection of Jesus is what our faith hinges on. Now we know that Christ forgave our sins. He redeemed us when he died for us on the cross. So what does the resurrection do? Well, it confirms that. If Christ had not risen from the dead, would we really know that he has power over death? Or would we always be wondering, well, he died. No, on the third day, God rose him from the dead so that he could show us his power over death and that we could have hope. This is part of why we hinge our faith in the resurrection. Now, what's interesting here is that it says God raised him from the dead. Now, Jesus is God. He's one of the three members of the Trinity. But yet over and over again in Scripture, you see God raised him from the dead. And this shows us the different aspects of the Trinity. God planned salvation. He raised Christ from the dead. But Christ is the one who died for our salvation to offer us eternal life. Now you might ask yourself, we've seen other people in Scripture rise from the dead. Turn to John chapter 11 for just a moment as we illustrate this. Throughout the Bible, there have been some hints that possibly someone's been raised from the dead. There's sometimes where Jesus will heal someone, and you could just say they were sick, and they were very sick, but maybe nearing death. You don't know if they're actually dead. But in John chapter 11, we see just a very clear example 
of Jesus raising someone from the dead. And that's in the story of Lazarus. So in John 11, we see that Lazarus has been sick for a couple days now. It's not like he was just very sick or he's been dead for a couple days. It's not like he's just very sick. He's actually been dead. And if you look at the first part of chapter 11, look at verse 3. The sisters of Lazarus called to Jesus. And so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he who loves you is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We know that Lazarus dies, but Jesus knows he's not going to stay dead, and that's something to remember throughout this entire story. We skip ahead to verse 17 of chapter 11. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. So it's not like this guy has just been sick. They've already buried him. They've already put him in the tomb. It says that Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So everybody understood that he was dead. They even have people that are comforting them while they are grieving during this time. And the sisters of Lazarus start pointing at Jesus, saying, if you would have been there, then he wouldn't have died. And what we see here is that they trusted that Jesus had the power to heal people. They'd seen this over and over again, that Jesus could heal people from their sickness, even if they were very sick. But why are they upset? Because they don't really think that Jesus has the power to raise him from the dead. They just think that he has the power to heal. So all this time, Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, even if the people don't know that. And we even see that he's upset about Lazarus' death and the emotional strain that this has brought. And this is where we get the verse that Jesus wept. Now, as Jesus responds to them and tells them that he's going to rise from the dead, he uses this phrase. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So Jesus has always had power over death. We know the rest of the story in John 11. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and it's something that people point to, showing that he is God. Now, back in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that God raised Christ from the dead, but Jesus isn't the only one who has been raised from the dead. There have been others as well. But look at that next word. Not only did he raise Christ from the dead, but he seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Now, Lazarus may have been raised from the dead, but he wasn't seated at the right hand of God. That shows us the authority and the power of of Christ. It goes back to Psalm 110. It says, the Lord says to my enemies, sit at my, or the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There in that Psalm, it points pretty specifically to Christ. If you read through it, showing that he would be seated at the right hand of God. Later, it says that he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. All this is showing us the authority of Christ, it's given to him by God the Father. As many of you know that I've been subbing at the local middle school and high school here, and when I'm substitute teaching, I try to do things that the teacher would normally do. If they leave me sub plans, if they tell me what they want the kids to do, I try my hardest to make it like the teacher was there. Because what happens is if I do things completely differently, and the teacher comes back, the kids are going to be confused and nothing's going to make sense. But 
There are times when I get called in last minute, maybe a teacher just gets sick overnight and they can't send their sub plans. There's times where they call me in to substitute teach and I have no plans whatsoever. There's no assignment for the kids to do. They don't have expectations for them. I don't know where everything is. Maybe it's just really disorganized in that classroom. And when that happens, I have to exercise some kind of authority and say, this isn't going to be like when your teacher is here. Sometimes the kids will tell me when I'm subbing, well, the teacher lets us do this. You should let me go to the bathroom because the teacher lets us go all the time. You should let me sit by my friend because she would let me do that. And I first say, you're lying. There's no way that she would let you two sit by each other. <laughs> and secondly, I don't care what your teacher says. I'm telling you now, this is what you need to do. Why? Because in that moment, I have the authority. Now, that doesn't mean that I have authority over everyone in the school. But in that classroom, I have the authority to tell them who they can or cannot sit by. And why is that? Because that authority has been delegated to me by the school. And I'm responsible to the school and the school is responsible for my actions. So why does Jesus have authority in verse 20? It's because it's been given to him by God. Now, is he God? Yes. But God raised him from the dead, seated him in heaven. This authority is given to him by God the Father. We see that this authority is eternal. It is going to last forever. We understand from this verse why Jesus has authority. Paul is showing the Ephesians that because God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, he can not only answer our prayers, but we should submit to the authority of Christ. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that the resurrection is the confirmation of our faith? This is what's talked about in this verse. The resurrection is crucial for Christians, not just knowing the gospel, but in every aspect of our Christian life. We see that in Romans 10.9, the resurrection is essential to our confession. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that what? God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So even in our salvation, confessing Jesus as Lord means what? We confess the resurrection. It's not only essential to our confession, it's essential to our sanctification. In Romans 6, 4, Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was what? Raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This metaphor that Paul uses shows us that as Christ died and rose again, we die to sin, we walk in a new life just as Christ did. The resurrection is essential in our encouragement. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We see all throughout scripture that if God raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is in us, encouraging us, helping us to be transformed. Finally, the resurrection is essential to our hope. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, 
Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Every chapter of 1 Thessalonians tells us about the coming of Christ. Here, as Paul says that Jesus is coming again, we can trust that he's coming again because he's been risen from the dead. Jesus said, I will die and three days later I'll rise again. Jesus has also said, I'm coming again. And we can count with as much certainty, we can count on the fact that Jesus will again come into our lives. So we should trust the resurrection. We should believe in the authority that God has given Christ. We not only want to see the why of Jesus' authority, we want to look at where Jesus has authority. And we see that in verse 21. It says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Here we see the areas where Jesus has authority. And again, the spheres or the areas where we have authority is important. I mentioned this earlier. If you have kids, you may have authority over your kids. You don't necessarily have the authority to tell someone else's kids what they should and should not be doing unless their parents have told you that you can do that. So where Jesus has authority is important. And this is what Paul is going to show us. We see, first of all, that his authority is far above all these things. What does that mean? Well, we've seen that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's seated in heaven, and now he's above everything. Time and time again, we see in Scripture that God is seated in where? The heavens. He sits on his throne in heaven, and he looks down on what is going on. He's able to see everything. If you ever go to the beach and you see the lifeguards, where are they seated? They're seated high above everything. That doesn't mean that they have authority in every aspect of your life, but they have authority over the beach. And if they see someone drowning, they want to be able to see where they are to go and to locate them and to bring them back to shore. Jesus is seated far above all these different things that Paul is going to mention. That shows his authority. That shows his lordship. Now, Paul uses several words here that are a little bit tricky for us to understand what he's talking about. These are either human terms for authority or there's some kind of spiritual terms for authority. He says he's, first of all, far above all rule. Far above all rule. The King James translates this as principality. The definition of the word is an authority figure who initiates activity or process. And the question is, is this a human rule or is this an angelic rule? We know that there are human authority figures that we see in life. But I also think Paul is including spiritual terms as well. If we look at Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, that same word, or authorities. We see the same word used in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers. So this is some kind of authority that's not just flesh and blood. It's some kind of spiritual power that Paul is describing here. So I would say it includes human rule, yes, but its focus in these words is on spiritual rule as well. Secondly, we see that Christ is above all authority. This has a special emphasis on transcendent rule. 
The King James translates this as power. This is not just an authority figure, but this is someone who has the capacity to make rules, to exercise their authority. Have you ever met someone who's just a figurehead where you look at them and you say, okay, they're technically in charge. They're not the ones actually doing, exercising the authority. People just look at them like they're in charge. But they're not the ones who are actually doing things here in this capacity. So Christ is above not only all those who have titles, but all those who actually have the capacity to have authority. Thirdly, we see the word power. This is translated in the King James as might. And this shows a remarkable power that's often supernatural power. Jesus has power over all those who say that they have power. We know from our study in Acts that the city of Ephesus was known for having people who practiced magic and even witchcraft in the city. They would try to summon their power. What Paul is telling us is that Jesus has authority. He is above all those who think they have some kind of power, whether it's physical or spiritual. There's people even in our world today who think they have some kind of mystical or magic power. And I can tell you this, they do not get that power from God. They may have some kind of power, but you don't want to know where they get it from. It is a demonic, it is an evil power that they're trying to possess. It's things that they don't want to mess with. Paul's telling us that Christ has authority over all people who think they have power. Lastly, we see in this verse, and dominion. This can be translated as lordship. This shows us that everyone who has any territory, everyone who has any sphere of authority, Christ is over them. Christ has authority over all. And then he uses this phrase, he says, and above every name that is named. And as we think about names in scripture, we know that names are important in the Old Testament. God often gives people a new name. Abram goes to Abraham. Jacob goes to Israel. But names also in Ephesus were important because people would try to do magic in the name of someone. They would say, I'm going to do this, use this power in the name of so-and-so. If you look back at Paul's visit to Ephesus in Acts 19, the sons of Sceva were trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus or in the name of Paul. Do you remember what the demons said to them? I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but I don't know who you are. And so he, they drive them out, literally. And so what Paul's saying is Jesus is above every name that is named in heaven or on earth. It reminds us of Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 9 through 11. In fact, turn there with me just for a moment. God is showing us the lordship of Christ. He's shown us Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, how he became obedient to death. But then in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what's so important about a name? Well, it is at the name of Jesus that everyone, whether they know Jesus now or don't, is going to bow and recognize him as Lord. And that tells us this, 
that whether you submit to the authority of Christ now or you don't, there will be a day where you acknowledge him as Lord. You may not want to. You may still be wrestling against him, but there will be a day where you bow against it, or where you bow before him as Lord. He's above every name that is named. It says, not only in this age, but in the one to come. That doesn't just mean that Jesus has authority now. It means he's always going to have authority. You think about people in our culture, in our country that have authority. They have term limits. The president can only be the president for four to eight years. People in office can only be in office for so long. Even if they have an unlimited term limit, they can keep being elected. There will be a day where they die. And then that office moves to someone else. Paul is telling us that Christ has authority not only now, but in the future as well, for all of eternity. So we see here where Jesus has authority. It's over everything. So this morning the question is, do you submit to Jesus in every aspect of your life? He has authority over all things. Are you submitting to him in your life? We said earlier, there's many people who don't accept the gospel because they don't want Jesus to tell them what to do. What does it mean that Jesus has authority over your life? First of all, it means that he has authority over your family. The Bible has a lot to say about how our families are run. He tells husbands to love their wives. He tells wives to submit to their husbands. He tells children to obey their parents. He tells parents how they should raise their children. The Bible tells us how our family should be operated, how they should be ran. We should submit to him and his lordship over our family. Do we interact with our family members like God has commanded us to? Fathers and husbands, do you lead your families in ways that honor Christ? Do you submit to him? Jesus not only has authority over our family, he has authority over our jobs. Whether you like your job, whether you don't like your job, whether you're still working, whether you're retired, God has authority over what your occupation is. He has control over your job. Many people think, if I only worked here, if I only made this much money, or if I only had this person in my work, or if I only didn't have this person here with me, then everything would be better. No, Jesus has authority over you and your job. And because of that, we should work diligently to the Lord, representing him well. And what does that mean? It means there should never be a Christian who's not known for working hard, not because they're trying to show off, but because they're working for the glory of God. Jesus has control over our jobs and our occupation. Jesus has authority over our finances. Now you may say, I don't have very much finances for him to have authority over, but it's still his money. And he knows how much money you're going to make. And the situations that we're in, the financial situations that we're in, he knew that was going to happen. And so we still submit to him with our money. It doesn't mean that we give him all of our money and we tithe all of our money so we don't have anything left. But it does mean we do give generously to God and to others. And we exercise proper organization and stewardship of our finances. Finally, Jesus has authority over our church. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. It is Christ's 
church. And the decisions we make here as leadership and as people in this church should be done according to the Bible, according to God's word, for the glory of God. So Jesus has authority over every facet of our lives. Do you submit to Christ? Is there an area of your life, maybe that I mentioned or that I didn't mention, where you're not submitting to the authority of Jesus? Finally, we want to look at how does Jesus exercise his authority? We know why he has authority. We know where he has authority. But how does that authority work? In verse 22, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. What does it mean that all things are under the feet of Christ? It doesn't just mean that he's stepping on you. But the metaphor literally is a general in the Roman culture, after they would win, they would walk over to their enemies and they would step on their enemies' throats, signifying that they had victory, that they'd won, that they were dominant over them, that all these people that they defeated were beneath them. Now, I don't think this means that Jesus is going to step on your feet now, but what it means is that Jesus has authority over all things. He has victory over all things. He defeated death. And he's the only person in history to fully defeat death. Even those who were raised from the dead, Lazarus, he would die once again. Christ has victory over death. All things are under his feet. Then it says, and gave him his head over all things to the church. Paul specifically mentions the church and the authority that Christ has over the church. He says he is the head over the church. Now, what do our heads do? Well, our heads are supposed to think. For some of us, that's a little bit harder than others. Sometimes my grandpa would tell me when I would make a mistake, well, use your head. And it was, that meant it wasn't working like it needed to. Christ, as the head, shows us, first of all, that he has the face, right? It's what people see. When you think of someone, you think of their face. That's their representation. That's what shows people who they are. So Christ represents the church. He is what people should see when they look at the church. They should see Christ. But then the head also tells the rest of the body what to do. It controls the functions of the body. The truth is you can live without your hand. You can live without your leg. You can live without your fingers and toes. You may not want to, but you can. You can't live without your head. Now, I know chickens run around with their heads cut off sometimes, but not for very long, okay? You can't live without your head. Christ is the head of the church. It means he represents the church. It's what people should see when they look at the church. But then he tells the church what to do. Now, there's some churches that don't live that way. They've said, well, we're not going to submit to the authority of Christ. We're just going to do what we want to do. In fact, it's more common as you start looking at churches, even churches that call themselves conservative or Christian or Baptist or Bible churches, you look at how they're ran and they've not thought about the authority of Jesus. You say, well, why do you have this leadership structure here? Well, it's just what we wanted to do. Why do you affirm homosexuality and gay marriage and all of these other issues? Well, it's just what we want to do. They don't have authority in, they don't find their authority in scripture. They just do what they want 
What Paul is saying is, if Jesus has authority given to him by God over all things, then he has authority over the church and how the church is to be run. Look at Matthew chapter 16 briefly with me. Matthew chapter 16. In this passage, Jesus asks his disciples an important question. Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're a prophet. Some people say that you're John the Baptist or Elijah. Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And in this passage, he tells us something important about the church. He says, you're a Peter. And on this rock, I don't think the rock is Peter, but it's on the basis of Christ being the Messiah, being the Son of God. He says, I will will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he uses a couple of phrases that are sometimes difficult for us to understand. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And what does that mean? I think it's Jesus saying that the church has authority during the church age. Now, while we are here on the earth, as long as we are following God's word, submitting to the authority of Christ, we have authority given to us by God. Now, we don't want to abuse that authority, but we have the authority to share the gospel with others and to make disciples. We see in Matthew 18, as Jesus talks about church discipline, he gives the church what? Authority again. If the church exercises church discipline, they can say this person has not repented of sin. Therefore, we don't have confidence that they are a believer. Christ has given authority to the church. But back in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is telling the Ephesians that Christ is the head of the church. He gets to tell the church what to do. He says how it should run. We see the church is finally described in verse 23 as his body. Christ is the head, we are the body. We, and then it says, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Now, if you look at this last phrase, it's very difficult to translate and understand what it's talking about. Even in our English Bibles, we read it and we think, what does it mean that he's the fullness of all and filling? And we almost get dizzy trying to understand what it's talking about. There's a dozen different combinations of what this verse can mean. And I think it means this, that the church is the fullness of Christ as they share the gospel with others in the world. We fulfill the mission of Christ. It doesn't mean that God needs us, but we as the body of Christ fulfill the mission of God as we share the gospel with others. Then it says that he fills all in all. That means that Christ fills us. He enables us to share the gospel. It reminds me of Colossians chapter 1 verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So yes, we share the gospel. But before we get proud, before we think that we're really worth something, remember, it's in Christ that all things consist. If it were not for Jesus, none of us would be able to sit here right now. We would just explode into millions of atoms. It is through Christ that we're able to be here and consist. The church has authority, but it's given to them by Jesus. The church hasn't always used its authority well. We've seen in different examples of the church's life 
where sometimes we've not used the authority like we should. Think about issues like slavery in America. Sometimes the churches back in the 1800s didn't use their authority well. Sometimes churches today don't use their authority well because they make the church all about social issues and not about the gospel. You think about church history, there's a thousand years where the church was in the dark ages, where everyone submitted to the Catholic church and their authority, and they did not submit to God's word. Some churches don't always understand the Great Commission. They either don't practice it by making disciples, or they don't really share with people the gospel. Some churches embrace the prosperity gospel, saying that the gospel is about your health and your wealth, about living a good life, saying God wants you to be happy in this life. But they don't truly care about the gospel. As a church, we should repent when we don't look like what the body should look like. This means speaking the truth in love. We don't compromise on our doctrine. We stand for what the Bible says. We also do it in love. Sometimes churches haven't always been loving. Even if they've had right doctrine, they've not always shown the love of Christ to other people. There are many ways people abuse authority, even in the church. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we can represent Christ well, even in our church. So the question this morning is, do you submit to Jesus Christ? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he in control of this church? Are there areas of your life where you've not submitted yourself to Christ and his authority? There are many times that we want the answer to that question to be yes. We say, yes, I'm submissive to Christ. He is Lord of my life. But then you look at the different areas of our life and we're not submissive to him and how we talk. And we're not submissive to Christ in what we watch. And we're not submissive to Jesus in our finances or in all these different areas. No, if Jesus is all these things that we've said, then we should submit to him. And he is going to radically transform the way that we live. How do we apply this to our lives this morning? What do you do when you see areas of your life that don't look like what Jesus says they should look like? As we close this morning, I want to look at four different ways that we can submit to the authority of Christ. First of all, identify areas in which you do not submit to the authority of Christ. Do an honest evaluation of your own life. Am I making Jesus my Lord? Is he in control of all things? We know that he already is, right? He's in control of all things in heaven and on earth. The question is, are you submissive to him like you should? Are you totally surrendered to him? Or are there areas in your life where you've not turned them over? This will likely be different for all of us. But is there something you're still holding on to? You might say, well, I know there's this area. Or I know there's this thing in my life, but I just don't know how to change Well, secondly, repent of your rejection of Christ's authority. Once you've found what it is in your life where you're not submissive to Christ, repent of holding on to that. Confess it to the Lord. Say, I'm sorry for trying to be the Lord of my own life. I need to submit to Jesus. Return to the Lord. Ask him to be Lord of your life. It doesn't mean you need to be saved again. But it may mean that you need to confess this sin to God.
Thirdly, orient your life under the authority of Christ. Study scripture, get into God's word. Say, what does it mean for me to be submissive to God in this area? And don't hold on to anything. What does it look like for me to be totally surrendered to God in this area of my life under the lordship of Christ? Are you getting rid of everything? Is there still something you're holding on to? Finally, live as a testimony of God for Christ in this area of your life. As you change, as you're growing, as you're submitting to the Lordship of Christ, live as a good testimony to others, not to show off, but to show what Jesus has done in your life and how he's changed you. One of my favorite people to listen to on the radio or on YouTube is Dave Ramsey. He's a financial guru. You can listen to his talk show on the radio or on YouTube. You can get his uh, classes on financial peace. And whether you think he's great concerning finances or you disagree with him, that's not my point with this illustration. But I love listening to his show because he gets people that call in who say, I'm following the baby steps. And if you don't know what the baby steps are, he has seven steps for you to get out of debt and to become financially stable and secure. And they include things like getting an emergency fund and paying off all your debt and cutting up your credit cards and saving for retirement and things like that. And he's got them all listed out in seven different steps for you to follow. And again, I'm not trying to say everybody should go follow Dave Ramsey here this morning. But what I think is interesting is there's people who call into his show and they say, well, yeah, I've been following the baby steps, but I bought all this with my credit card. He says, well, wait a second. That's not what I, if you read the book, if you've listened to my show, if you've done the classes, you'd know I'm not telling you to buy stuff with a credit card. And it always goes back to that. There's people who call in and they say, I don't know what's wrong. But I've racked up all this debt. I went out and bought a new car or I got a new jet ski or I did this. And he's saying, well, you're not really following what I told you to do. You need to go back and retake the class. And the point is this, that if you're going to say that you're following his method for financial peace, you have to what? Follow what he tells you to do. And you say, well, I may not like this part of it. You want to kind of pick and choose. I want to do this, but maybe not this. And that's fine, but that's not what he's telling you to do. And if you're going to use his method for financial peace, you need to follow those steps. And as we live as Christians this morning, I want to finally encourage us with this. If you're going to call yourself a Christian and say, I'm totally committed to being a follower of Jesus Christ, then are there things in your life that he's told you to do that you're still not doing? You may say, well, I'm a Christian. I follow the Lord, but I don't really like what the Bible says about my language. Or I don't really like what the Bible says about my family. Or I don't really like what the Bible says about my finances. If that's your attitude about God's word, then you may say you're a Christian. You may say you're following Christ. But until you're willing to surrender that to him, you're not living like a testimony for the gospel. You're not living like he's called you to and the truth is, is that what we find in these four verses of Ephesians 1 is that Jesus is Lord over everything. This isn't a question about whether he is Lord over the church, over your life. The question is, are you willing to submit to him and his authority for your life? And as we do this, this starts to change our identity. I've said that Ephesians is all about our identity in Christ. 
we stop saying that I'm in control and we stop saying that this is mine and that I'm going to do whatever I want and we start asking the question, what does Jesus want me to do with this? How does Jesus want me to change in this area? And we submit to him and his authority. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who's died for our sins, who rose again from the dead. We thank you for his authority in our lives. Sometimes it's not easy for us to follow, but we know that it is good. We know that as the world waits for someone to come in and fix all of our problems, we know that that won't happen until your son, Jesus Christ, returns and reigns over the earth. And so, Father, we await that day. We ask now that as we turn towards communion, as we remember what Christ has done for us on the cross, that you would just give us a spirit of thankfulness, a spirit of reflection as we think about our own lives, and just a thanksgiving for what he's done for us. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.